I married into a Christmas Eve family. I See, yeah, I uh, totally get that. Yeah, they, so you didn't meet a good <laughs> Christian boy, did you, Valerie? <laughs> they had German roots, and it just they messed it all up. And I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire. Thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness. Just like Israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke, we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're doing our best to to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Don't you know it's all I have? But even on my Hey everyone, welcome to the Following the Fire podcast book club. These have been so much fun. I'm so excited to, to discuss this. We're going to be talking about Jesus and John Wayne. So today we're joined by Valerie Query. I've known Valerie since our time back at Oklahoma Christian University back in the day. And I thought Valerie, uh, with her connections to Canada and America and even Brazil, I thought she'd be, have a lot of really good insights for the discussion today. So uh, Valerie, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and uh, let us know who you are. Okay. So yes, um, I am Valerie. I grew up in uh, Canada, actually. Um, I My parents moved to a congregation when I was five months old, and they are still at that Church of Christ congregation. My dad retired a couple years ago. Um, but they are still there. Um, so, in you know, Canada? only about 20 years in Canada. Yeah. So that is my whole context, although I am a dual citizen, um, which makes things nice and messy and complicated sometimes. But I probably culturally identify more as Canadian overall. It's definitely like who where I learned to be who I am. Um, but I came down to Oklahoma to go to college uh, at Oklahoma Christian. And did the good thing, met a good Christian boy, and <laughs> which is what you're supposed to do when you go to Christian college. Right, that's, that's and, your primary job, yeah. It is, it is. But uh, we shared a common dream of international missions, and so after we graduated, we joined a team uh, and planted a church in Brazil. We were there for eight years. And then um, eight years ago, we moved back and we are in Oklahoma. And I'm like, how do I live in small town Oklahoma? This was never, ever, ever uh, the plan. But we live in a college town, so it's tolerable. There's a lot more uh, diversity. And I, we're, we're a blue dot in a sea of red, the, our town <laughs> is. So you, you at least get some mixture of beliefs which is nice. So uh, that's me. And like currently, so I, having grown up, you know, a PK and I mean, my mom was a PK, like that was the family business. And all of a sudden now I have found myself not in ministry for the first time in my life. And that is weird, but. Yeah. I didn't realize you were in Brazil for eight years. Yeah. Wow. It was a was that like com- coming back from from Brazil to Oklahoma? That was a challenge, like going from a city of four million to um, Stillwater. That was, <laughs> 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 but honestly, at that point, we had enough other things going on um, in our lives that location was like the least of our concerns in the transition. Like we were just trying to get our feet on the ground. 
um, and just hit the ground running. But my my in-laws live here, so that's how we ended up here. Okay. Well, yeah, we wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about this book, Jesus and John Wayne, partly because you do have a much more international kind of a background than than we do. You know, being a dual citizen and coming, you know, growing growing up mostly in Canada, and with the the Brazil stuff on top of it, I just thought it'd be really interesting to see, hear your perspective of things um, from from that point of view on on a, on a book that's very it's very focused on America and masculinity, <laughs> and uh, you're technically neither one of those things. So <laughs> I just wanted to it, that'd be a good balance. I mean, technically American, but I will say it it was really interesting especially in the first couple of chapters, because I have never taken a traditional American history course. Um, <laughs> like I had to look up so much stuff. Like I uh, have a, a posted in my book, like of all the, I started keeping track of all the things that I was having to Google. Cause I'm like, Oh, there was a Spanish American war. I need to know about that. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. There's just some stuff that I was maybe behind in. So the first couple chapters took me a lot longer than uh, the second half of the book. It, that's very interesting. I was going to ask, do Canadians, are they different than Americans? Do you think different? Or is it like just colder Americans? Oh, no. Yeah, we, I could get myself into some real trouble here. But no, it is, it is culturally very different, I would say. I mean, yes, like you still have this um, European, you know, white European background as the historical back um, basis for the culture. But um, Canada is definitely a little more collectivist. Um, some okay. would say more socialist, you know, but that, that concern for um, everyone else's well-being that you would see more in a lot of the European countries. Um, is that where we get the stereotype of Canadians being kind and, Polite. Oh, we're just good people. <laughs> we're just better. <laughs> I mean, that's just... <laughs> I mean, that, that's really Not it. Not to put too fine a point on it, right? Although there there have been a lot of changes, and so Canada is now even more diverse um, than it was, but then also we do see some of this evangelical surge um, coming up there that just, it didn't exist. And I would say, too, you know, as having a common Church of Christ background, the church in Canada also has a different flavor. Um, definitely mm. feels like the church I grew up in was very apolitical. Um, we didn't hear about any of that stuff. Uh, we, uh, no military, just nothing. It, it was, it's way more chill. I'm mean, not to say that we didn't get caught up on issues because I mean, sure. everyone can, but it was just different. It was a real surprise. And I would say, too, um, the uh, there were some things that really surprised me, like moving to the United States as an adult. Like, I had never heard of the concept of manifest destiny. I had no idea that that really? existed. And I really had no idea that America was God's chosen nation. Like, that was a shock. I'd spent my life thinking I lived in a good country, but apparently not. Like... <laughs> Well, Canada's good, but, you know, God's chosen. It's different. You know, 
Yeah, if if it can't be be the best, you have to learn how to be nice to people. You know, if you're the best, you you can wave your big stick around, do anything you yeah. want. I would I would love to unpack um, how Canadians tend to feel about Americans, but uh, yeah, yeah, we won't. I'm, uh... Well, you know, that's kind of why we have you here. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's start talk about talk about the book a little bit. Uh, Nathan, you want to give an overview of the book a little bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll do an executive summary for those who... Yeah, so we read Jesus and John Wayne. The subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted Faith and Fractured a Nation. Um, it's by Kristen Kobes dumay It was released uh, early 2020. I feel like the timing of this, the release is important because you, you could have written yeah. three more chapters um, depending on... Uh, with all the stuff that's happened, but I would say America seems more divided than ever right now. And seemingly in like every way on every issue and hold up a copy of this book in an airport, show it to a stranger you meet. I think you would see right away what I mean by that. Uh, one group would, would see, uh, there's some awesome six shooter revolver guns on the cover. This, this nice red, white, blue with some gold jacket. Prominent title, Jesus and John Wayne. So one group of people is going to see this and endorphins are going to start to flood the right parts of their brain. But then they're going to get to the subtitle and the endorphins are going to be replaced by cortisol and adrenaline. How evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, right? Or you show this and, and the other group, is going to get to the subtitle and let out a deep sigh. Like, yes, what the heck? How did this happen? So let me just say, if you are in the former category, there is probably nothing in this book for you. If anything, the the subtitle is the sugar-coated version of a very, very hard-to-swallow pill in, in this book. Maybe a suppository, I don't know. And after reading... <laughs> The tension, possibly the, the tension yeah, that I'm yeah, feeling, okay. and you know that the analogy is is correct for what it's what it's like. And after reading this, it's funny because it's, <laughs> it's true. Funny, it's funny because it's too soon. And after reading this book, frankly, the former category can take their quiverful of homeschooled, gun-toting, patriarchal, militant, racist Theo Bros to H E double hot. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, what I meant to say is. This book isn't for everybody, but Dumay's unrelenting march through 70 years of American evangelical movements does answer a question a lot of people are asking, a lot of Americans, a lot of people looking at America, religious or otherwise. How did we end up here? So uh, so what Kristen Dumay does, she looks at the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. And a lot of people thought, wait a minute, the values voters, this group called evangelicals, it just doesn't match. This is the kind of person that, that you wouldn't expect evangelicals to rally behind in such overwhelming numbers. Dumay's argument is that evangelicals didn't cast the vote despite their beliefs, but because of them. She talks about this group of evangelicals, and evangelicals... A tricky category because the way evangelicals see themselves or want to define themselves is theologically. 
And so there are these four evangelical distinctives of upholding the Bible as, as an authority, of the centrality of Christ's atonement uh, for sin, a born-again conversion or baptism, and then um, actively um, spreading the, the good news in, in a culture. That's what, on paper, defines an evangelical. But uh, what, what Dumais shows is that it, that's how evangelicals want to see themselves, but evangelical, this is a quote, evangelicalism must be seen as a cultural and political movement rather than a community defined chiefly by its theology. And that, that's, the whole, that's the whole problem that she then um, explores, which is that a group that sees itself one way, but that behaves in a, in a very different way. So the book is a rapid-fire history starting around the 1950s, leading up to, to modern times, showing how an evangelical movement that displaced maybe organized structured churches, like the Catholic Church with hierarchy and priests and ordained ministers, uh, replacing that with a consumer culture that just followed, followed the markets. In the 50s, there started to become this need in evangelicalism and in the country to masculinize the faith. Uh, to masculinize men, to make men more manly, and even to make Jesus more manly. And so uh, we hear about heroes like Teddy Roosevelt or William Wilberforce, John Wayne, these things where America, who, who's this this uh, new superpower in the world, thanks to World War II, now we get, we get in, into Vietnam and there's a crisis. We're, we're not winning, and, and that crisis quickly becomes a crisis of gender, where we have these civil rights demonstrations that quickly become a crisis of law and order, and then quickly a crisis of human hearts, souls instead of bodies. And so Americans and Christians are looking for the answer, and we see that answer in the, in the archetype of John Wayne. John Wayne is unapologetic in his manliness, in his patriotism, even in his whiteness. And what's even more important is who he's against. He's against sissy men. He's against commies. And he, even in, the, in his movies he is, and even behind the scenes he is. And so we, we move through and see things like evangelicals supporting a candidate like Nixon instead of the evangelical son of a minister, George McGovern. Uh, by 84% of the vote. As, as we move through this history, we hear names like Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, Phyllis Shafley, Billy Graham, and we hear about lots of enemies like communism, which gives way to feminism or and this need for hierarchy, militancy, stronger morality, and protecting against the new Islamic terror threat or Sharia law, all the way up to how did that... 84% of the vote then go to Donald Trump two times in a row. Or as she, she said recently, four years is a long time to hold your nose. <laughs> Reading this book was extremely stressful. It was triggering. It was frustrating. It was enlightening. Ultimately, so infuriating that when I finally put the book, put the book down, I literally, and I mean literally, had to let out a primal scream at the top of my lungs. A barbaric yawp, uh, if you will. Maybe like William Wallace would have in Braveheart, or perhaps John Wayne charging into battle in the Alamo 
Maybe like Jesus in the garden, or perhaps Donald Trump walking up a flight of stairs. Oh boy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's quite the intro. <laughs> So with all that said, uh, Valerie, what what were your what what do you what comes to mind when you start thinking about this book? Or well, um, I want to point out first too that a couple things. Um, one is that she approaches it as a historian; that this is not at all a theological book. Mm, that's a good. There's point. no theology in it. I mean, other than quoting people. Um, so we do have this perspective, um, the gift that a historian would bring to it. And, and as a Christian historian as well, you know, she's not just, she's not out to get evangelicalism, I don't think. And certainly having read interviews and listened to her talk, it's like, she's, she's helping for redemption here. The other thing that I would say that would be important to keep in mind as we think about this is that any time we start talking about maybe expanding how we look at past events, whether it be, you know, the last 75 years of evangelical life or critical race theory or any of that, like we can start sounding just as crazy as the conspiracy theorists that we're Facebook friends with, you know, like to them, we're going to sound like that. And that's very threatening. And so I just say that to say, like, we approach this with humility, which we know among ourselves, but maybe someone did keep listening. (laughs) (laughs) after that delightful intro and um that it's like you know this we're aware that this this is unsettling to look at some of this stuff and be like whoa this is what was going on because i feel like there there was like a little backroom stuff there was some Mm -hmm. there were some really deliberate steps that were taken and and it does feel very conspiratorial and so i just i i want to be aware that we could sound uh threatening and and that and again that's not at all you know it's i i i'm a big fan of getting the truth out there regard no matter how painful it is um or uncomfortable it is which kind of gets me to my first thought when i had it which was that i or when i read it which is that i wanted to come at this book as an interested like observer like just out of curiosity i have never considered myself an evangelical yeah, same. Like, I I was raised to believe I was not an evangelical. <laughs> That's probably a better way to say it. You know, it's like it, yeah. there, was, there was Christian culture, and then there was us, and we were delightfully weird, and we weren't supposed to want to be part of that. And yet we did. I want, oh, I wanted to be, like, listening to the cool Christian music and, and getting the t-shirts. <laughs> and, like, when I moved to Oklahoma and discovered Mardell, like, that was cool. And there was this awesome, and so, you know, as I started reading and she starts talking about how the definition of evangelicalism is probably better, um, it's better defined by consumption and by the things that are consumed. So the music, the focus on the family, you know, like, and, and she lists a bunch of things and basically probably, yes, if you shopped at Mardell, you're probably an evangelical. Um, (laughs) by the books (laughs) you know uh, especially because the distribution of christian books became a means through which some of these ideas were seminated that was one of the first points at which i was like oh 
oh no, like I'm in this. Yeah. And then as I kept going, then I started keeping a list because, you know, we know who Church of Christ people are. And so when I would encounter something with a Church of Christ connection, I'd be like, oh, oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> that is us. <laughs> I just that awareness that. that like, that that's the, the air that we've been breathing. And as much as we yeah. tried to deny it, like, we still, like, that is, that is the culture in which we found ourselves. And maybe not as overtly as, you know, our Southern Baptist friends, but it's affected us. Because, um, you know, you start, it's like, oh, Pat Boone. Oh. Oh, mm-hmm. Duck Dynasty. Oh. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was really uncomfortable. <laughs> That, that's such so. an that goes right into that problem of the your behavior defining you i mean your behavior as a society or or the way you want to define yourself you know because that i have the same problem my confession is that because i grew up church of christ and church of christ tries to dis, distinctivize itself away from kind of everything but evangelical would have at some times been a category like that but anytime I read the word mainstream Christian, I'm like, who who are they? What's a mainstream Christian? Because I'm so far, like, there's mainstream and then evangelical and then fundamentalist and then Church of Christ is out here so far that I don't even know, like, I can't yell far enough to hear, like, who are you? Who are the mainstream? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I also grew up, like, I guess more being taught that I was not an evangelical Christian because... The evangelical Christians are the ones who do things the wrong way, and we we got it figured out. But you know, the more I, I'm, the more we do this podcast, the more I read about evangelical life or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, that way I definitely was. And it wasn't just the consumption, but just kind of the the attitude a little bit. And I remember we we had a Bible superstore here in Fort Collins when I was a kid. And it was so fascinating to go in that place because they had all this music about God with instruments. And I was like, what? It's like rock music. Is that allowed with, with about God? But, but I, I wanted the, I wanted the t-shirts that were like, like uh, Jack Daniels t-shirt, but it was like subtly about God. Yeah, or something. Yeah. It looks like the Reese's yeah. logo, but it says Jesus. Yeah. 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 I love, I lo- Jesus satisfies. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Same. And it, that, that's the problem. Like even the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, they also historically distanced themselves from evangelical or, or, or that kind of thing yeah. and said, we're no, we're Baptists, right? And that that's where you, as soon as, I think kind of what Valerie, you're saying, like as soon as it's like pointing at you or or it's us pointing a finger at someone, you really want to squiggle out of like, well, that's not, that's not me. And that that's one of the reasons why reading this book was so stressful because it was, it wasn't describing my theological uh, ancestry, but man, is it describing my cultural ancestry? Yeah. So I actually, mm-hmm. at the, at the end of this book, uh, maybe what your experience was like as well was like, Oh, this, the, the, the players in America who over the last 70 years became more and more part of 
not specific denominations or churches, but just kind of the underlying cultural current. Mainstream. The, the mainstream. Those shaped not only what I'm for and against and, and my priorities and values and my the way I vote, but like so, so much of uh, what my culture is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think some of the stuff, like if if it kind of, if it's somewhat aligned with what we believed, it was easier to kind of slip it in, which was great. I mean, like I am all for broadening, but then we don't, we didn't always understand some of the underpinnings with which it was written. It's like, oh, I didn't realize this author was a neo-Calvinist. You know, that would have changed some things. Um <laughs> Which helps them, you know, that's why they come to the conclusions they do. But because it, mm-hmm. there's, it's full of scripture, it seems really sound. You know, you kind of, you open the door. I mean, in some ways, the people that we know who have been like, oh, no, I'm only going to read authors that are uh, Brotherhood, Church of Christ authors. Right. You, you know, there's, a, there's probably a, a benefit in some ways to that. There are other uh, downsides, but as far as some of this movement, they probably have escaped some of it. So, yeah, and I actually kind of I liked what she said about how you could probably define evangelical as likes Billy Graham, right? <laughs> Although my grandma is ninety nine, and she will still go off about Billy Graham because he doesn't teach baptism, you know. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I will say she she plugged her nose if. And voted, so... Yeah, yeah, and the, the book is ultimately... It, it's tying these two things together that, sh- like, in your mind shouldn't be related. Like, the our, mm-hmm. our families and, and uh, discipline and, and ha- how... What's the godly way to be a man? What's a godly way to be a woman? What's a godly way to be a family? How can we raise our kids better? Books about singleness or, or whatever. Uh, all, all these things, like... They don't have anything to do with politics, but as we as we go through the history, I think it'd be an interesting experiment to look at the presidents and just pick like which was the godly one to vote for, because it the those those groups of what became evangelical culture um, or just Christian culture. It's I think it's easier to just say Christian culture. I don't know who the not uh, who, who who isn't impacted by this in Christianity. Because I'm too far away from that, but it it all was tied into not just theology and not even just culture, but also uh, foreign policy and domestic politics in the U.S. Well, it's interesting because when there actually were evangelical presidents or candidates, like they were not, you know, you you think of Jimmy Carter, bless his heart, mm-hmm. like what a bad rap he got. You know, Obama technically was evangelical to a certain extent. You know, I mean, people who, Bill Clinton, you know, and it's like, these are people who who follow the same things, but they just were not extreme and didn't have the same goals. So, like, but those are your brothers. Yeah. And looking at what she has to say, it sounds like they were not just not extreme, they were the wrong party. So I, I, I have a partial list of things that blew my mind reading this book <laughs> or shocked me. I mean, I, I, I've listened to, to a lot of this book driving down to Oklahoma a few weeks ago and just listened to it in the car. 
on my headphones and I kept having to pause it and say, Chrissy, you've got to hear this. You're not going to believe this. <laughs> like constantly doing that. And um, what, I mean, one of the like, very low level thing was realizing that uh, Bill Clinton was a devout Southern Baptist. And like you said, Jimmy Carter was a, a very, I mean, he still is, he teaches Bible classes and a very faithful evangelical guy. And you compare that to uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980. It, it's Ronald Reagan's like a Donald Trump light sort of. And I just, I'm like, I grew up being taught that these guys were the bad guys for all these reasons, but I'm realizing it, it was just, it was just part of this machine. It, that was so the same thing. Cause I was raised in the same way, but in a, but staggered, you know, one election cycle basically. So I came on online in, into consciousness during the Clinton era. And, you know, I, I remember, so I, I wasn't around or I wasn't paying attention for whoever Clinton ran against, I guess, former George Bush, right? George Bush, number one. Is that yeah. yeah. So Clinton's elected. But then the, after that, I remember very clearly in, in elections, knowing that there was one candidate who was the godly candidate and, and, and not even, not even a, a question. And George Bush certainly took up the evangelical. George Bush was very good at giving little, dropping little lines of scripture into a speech um, mm. that you would pick up on if you were a, someone who read the Bible a lot. And it, it felt awesome to know like, yeah, okay, he's one of us. But as, you, as I moved through in history, I, I had that same, I didn't realize that. So when, when my guy is a Christian, then it doesn't really matter what degree of Christian they are. It, it's just like you can hold on to that gem of a Christian. So George Bush had some had some problematic things in his past, but also some great things. And so what I did because he was my culture is I latched on to the 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 things that I saw in him that made him a good Christian. But when uh, Obama came onto the scene and was running against John McCain. It, it blew my mind that Obama was converted to Christianity as an adult. Did you know that? Or co- converted to, really? he was converted as an adult, which to me is like a higher level of, like he didn't just get born into a family that was, that was Christian. But I, I saw him as, and the book describes him as being portrayed by evangelicals as kind of Islamic a little bit. Yeah. Um, that- oh, I not not kind of. I mean, <laughs> there is a certain subset that just still believes that that he is. Yeah. Right. So that if it's my enemy, it's uh, what I'm going to do is like I didn't even know he was any kind of Christian, and we move forward into Hillary versus Donald, and Hillary Clinton is doing the George Bush thing where she's saying speeches and slipping in Bible verses. Uh, because she's a Methodist and Donald Trump is like no kind is not pretending in any way to be a Christian. And so the Christians pretend for him. And, and uh, famously James Dobson says, do you know what? I've, I've met him. We talked. He's recently had a come to Jesus moment and he's a baby Christian. He's, he's just starting out. Um, but, but the seed is there. So 
he just gave us that, like, we literally had nothing to hold on to in this candidate. Like, there's nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. And so it was the evangelical movement who saw the culture that they liked, which was very strong ideas, very strong speech, a masculine projection of America in the world and defeating our enemies and 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 not being weak anymore. He said he's going to fight for Christians. And so we, we saw our culture and we followed that. Yeah, and I, I, that was a... Like you were saying, that that was something for a lot of Christians to grab onto that baby Christian thing because it explained away everything else. Therefore, nothing that happened before is relevant at all. And I think that came up after the uh, the uh, the yeah the Access, Access Hollywood. Hollywood tape, mm-hmm. and I mean where he was like very blatantly being a horrible, horrible person. Oh, he's a baby, baby Christian, and I spoke to a lot of people, even some family about him before the election in 2016 and the response was, well, he's, he's a baby Christian. I mean, it was like parroting things that they heard on Fox news or something. I'm not sure. But, um, when, when he was elected in 2016, I mean, not that this book is all about Trump, but it, it kind of answers the, the question, what the heck how in this world, how in the world this is, how did this happen? But after he was elected, I remember tur- turning to my wife and saying, you know, Christy, that there are going to be books written about how this happened. Just because it was so obvious that this guy was so anti-Christ and anti-God in so many ways, but all these Christians are behind him. And this is the first book that I've read that nails it, mm-hmm. and uh, it answers a lot of questions. I'm curious, Valerie, when, when you when you were around for that, how, how did that election hit for you? It's interesting, though, because I had, in that time, been doing a lot of listening. Um, And I'm I'm not saying this to, like, toot my own horn, but, you know, there had some of the racial stuff had been picking up. Um, And I was at a job where I was listening to podcasts all day. And I was listening to, I had made a point to start listening to voices that were not like mine. And Mm -hmm. so I was listening to podcasts by some minority voices. And uh, what was interesting, and I was going to say this, is, you know, we were all surprised when that happened, and they were not. And, yeah. and I think that's an important distinction. And she does make this in the book, that this is, this is white evangelicals. Minorities knew this was going on and, and have seen this at play. And this is a white movement. And I don't say that to put down white people. No, you're right. I, <laughs> But it and and so there's there's been a lot going on for years and years and years and we haven't had eyes to see it. And so now finally, like this is a an event that, you know, an apocalyptic event that is yeah. is helping us see truth and the truth of the world we're living in, which is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was painful. And like there were decisions made. Uh, during that time that I would, I wept. I mean, I had to take, turn notifications off on my phone because I was, uh, <laughs> I was getting traumatized by like Twitter notifying me of different uh, <laughs> bills that had been passed <laughs> and stuff like, I, like, oh, I cannot yeah. take any more of this. But as far as the the fact that it happened, it was not a surprise. 
not over. I mean, it was heartbreaking, but it wasn't surprising. I, I, and the, I think that's such a good point because there actually isn't a lot of Donald Trump in this book. Uh, it's just hard not to read it in 2021 and see like, oh, yeah. I know where this is going. Oh, I know where this well, is going. And that's why she wrote the book is an attempt to unpack what happened. Yeah. So that, I mean, she, she starts there and she ends there. Uh, because I think that there are a lot of people, and, and I think that the time is right for people to hear this message and to see, to look at, at the Christian world with fresh eyes and to realize that that maybe we've been corrupted and that that things, that we've lost sight of what it should be of first importance. <laughs> because yeah. all of a sudden, like, our praxis became way more important and these these issues like how your home is run and abortion and homosexuality and all these these became the defining issues for who's right and who's wrong and who's on the right track completely losing sight of oh i don't know like jesus yeah <laughs> who's that oh and apparently there's some debate about what jesus should look like but uh oh yeah that that stuff's painful like I wrote it at one point, I'm like, I have never met this Jesus, like this, this violent, I don't know. I don't see him in scripture. Right. I, I think one reason this book is so important is because Donald Trump was not the problem or the cause. Donald Trump was just a symptom of, yeah. of this 70 years and longer or, or shorter, but, but of, a, of generations of of something happening. And so the, you know, when we, when we got to 2016, there were lots of people who just didn't, didn't see that at all. And again, this book probably isn't for them unless they they kind of started to see it uh, around 2020. But for, for those that started to see this, like, wait, where are we going? And, and how are we supporting this person? The, The importance is that Donald Trump could have been anyone. Donald Trump could have been, there's an unlimited supply of Donald Trump's that if we continue right. to have the wrong priorities, that we're going to lift the wrong people up, mm-hmm. which is bad for our country, but especially bad for our faith and our witness. And there were literal passages in this book where someone that I have uh, really lifted up in my life, like, um, I don't know, Tim Keller or John Piper or James Dobson where they they will get themselves into a situation where they're stuck between trying to do something good they they see the power that they the their influence that they might be able to have but that's also bought them a pathway towards power to to having even more influence and they get stuck in this place where suddenly they're they're going to lose a lot of power or mm-hmm. they can bow to that power and they start to say phrases that are that are turning the gospel and the torah upside down and and that are, that lift up money and power and fame and and might and that that push down the the oppressed the other the the alien the immigrant and we Donald Trump is like the so obvious that it slaps you over the face example of this of mm-hmm. projecting this macho character 
and that the reason we kind of like him is because he's a his image is a wealthy it's like a kind of fairy tale it's like a caricature of what a rich new york tycoon yeah. would be right it's this idea of of and the guy literally has gold plated bathroom right exactly it's it's like it, it would be a greek in a greek you know tale he would be bacchus and and money and power and sex and fame and those are all the idols that people bow down to and worship except for Christ and except for God people because the God people are always told to cut those down and to be looking out for the alien, the 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 foreigner, the the widow, the orphan over and over and over and over and over. And you and so that's the big picture, but then you see these just little glimpses in, in one sentence where where one Christian will compromise and flip that on its head and value the wrong mm-hmm. thing. And it, and the, the, the cascading effects are so damaging. One of the things that came to mind though, is Christ, like the temptation of Christ. And I mean, isn't that one of the temptations, you know, it's like all this can be yours. And I think that that's kind of the idea that was latched onto by some of these, um, these guys it's like hey all this can be yours this nation Mm -hmm. can be yours and i think with the underpinnings of some of the american ideas of we are god's chosen that made it a lot easier but it's like all this power can be yours and then they were able to couch it in like well think of all the people who will be saved but if if we do this but at the end of the day the temptation of power is just so great it's it's so great and I don't think anyone like is setting out like I I too believe in the good of of humanity. I really do. And and I I don't think anyone is setting out to be evil. No one really does. Right? <laughs> and these are men right. of God and and my brothers in Christ and and then old Phyllis who just keeps popping up over and over again. <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly like she's through the whole book. Uh that would be a drinking game every time her name comes up. Because it's like every chapter, it's like the girl did not yeah. quit. Um, <laughs> but the, this promise of, I don't, I don't know. It's no one was seeking to to do well, to do bad. Yeah, and along along those lines, I think is that I don't feel like maybe it's just the like you said the the temptation of power is so mm-hmm. great that. So many people want that power, even if they are telling themselves they want it for good reasons, the ends justify the means type of thing. But what seems to have happened throughout the history that she's covering from the the 40s and 50s till now is that people came along at the right, just the right time to give Christians just just, just enough permission to let this thing slide or the next thing slide or the next thing slide. All the while, convincing Christians that it was for the the greater good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that this one of the things that shocked me was how the military was seen as a dangerous place for Christian men in shortly after the World War II. And I think she said it was Eisenhower maybe that recommended having everybody, every every man eighteen and up has to do military training. And the the church was the evangelical church. I mean, that's a it's a generalization, but you know what I mean. The evangelical church in America was like, whoa, whoa, whoa! We don't want 
our all of our boys to be going into the military because it's a place for you know debauchery and and sinfulness and it went from that to being this thing that if you are in the military you are closer to god and you are a holy person in some way shape or form and which blows my mind I, that i've always wondered how that happened and because i'm i'm a i guess a commie pacifist whatever you want to call me i i i do not like war in any any way shape or form and all I'll try to avoid it any way I can because I think that that's what Jesus was trying to get at with his you know, turn the other cheek stuff. But the I just even even if you're not a complete pacifist, it, it's not a Christian thing to just go kill people, right? And so, suddenly we are glorifying people in the military who go kill people because they're going to kill people, but they're the right people to kill, and that's okay. And just I don't know, just seeing that. It's just an example of, of the permissiveness that just starts small, and then now it's like it's it's desired that we have our young men go into the military so they can be warriors for Christ. Well, I think the fact that um, the wars in the 20th century, like starting with World War II, were there was an ideological basis, you know, and so we had communism and the Cold War, and so like, whoa, that we do not want the commies um like we we can kill them they're obviously bad and godless and then conveniently enough you know shortly after the cold war ends we have 9-11 and so we have a new oh well islam like they're out to get us we can kill them and and so because it's an ideological thing and not just you know nation against nation it it gives us a different basis and 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 helps us feel like oh well god is like clearly God wants this because Mm -hmm. they don't believe in him or they believe in a different God. And so that, that really, I think buoyed the, the sentiment. Yeah. But yeah, cause that, that's always been a tough thing for me to swallow too. I'm kind of like, I call it Anabaptish. Like I'm (laughs) definitely pacifist leaning and so i've always had a hard time swallowing this military stuff um and interestingly enough and this is this is a tangent um but we um a few years ago our church had the church we were going to at the time had um an oklahoma christian professor come and talk about the pacifist roots in the churches of christ and really? and all this research about how oh yeah so many like conscientious objectors and like really fascinating stuff up into the 20th century we got over that <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but good thing that's behind us it 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 was fascinating to like hear that because i'm like okay see i came from somewhere like those roots are there i, I think part of- Part of the surprise in all this is that I keep using the word culture, but culture is my word for all the things about you that you have never thought about, that you never question. It's the background mm. noise of your of your humanity. It's like, mm-hmm. um, and my perennial example is the way your family does Christmas, and then you go to someone else's house one day for Christmas, and they do it wrong. Yeah, not different, wrong. I married into a Christmas Eve family. I see, yeah, I uh, totally see, get that. Yeah, it, so you didn't meet a good <laughs> Christian boy, did you, Valerie? 
they had German roots and it just messed <laughs> it all up. Right. So so that's the that's the example, which is that you don't notice the thing. That's culture. Culture is the thing that's your assumptions, the things that prioritize your things. We think about the edges where maybe my assumptions brush up against someone else's. And so that's what can be so, uh, I guess, enlightening or frustrating about reading this book is you watch your culture evolving. Like, oh, that's mm-hmm. I, it hasn't always been this way. I can't imagine a world where it hasn't always been this way. There's a, a proverb that I love, and it's, um, to the fish, the water is invisible. Mm. You know, and it's it's just like, yeah, we have no concept. You know, someone on the outside looking in, it's it's obvious. But I, I think it's interesting, too. Like, we can see um, the trends. And, like, I was talking to my husband about this this afternoon. And, like, certain books in the latter chapters, it's like, oh, I remember, you know, I remember when someone gave him Point Man to read. And I remember when Wild at Heart was the thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember when people started listening to Mark Driscoll. Like, these were obvious things, but it all, I hate to say it was a slippery slope, because I think sometimes slippery slopes can be great. But it was a slippery slope. Yeah, and and the, I think Nathan, to your point about the culture, I think one of the things that now that you said that, looking back at reading this book, one of the things that unsettled me about reading the book was not just that I saw my culture being formed, but I, I at the same time I felt like my culture was being destroyed as I read the book, because mm-hmm. culture is not some it's something that you not only think is that you don't notice, but you think that it's the right way to do it, like the Christmas thing, right? Um, and the correct answer is one gift on Christmas Eve, everything else on Christmas morning. Let's, you know, let's not get into that. (laughs) That's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus did it. Um, but I, I, I kept seeing all these things that I thought I, that were just fact, or I thought I knew why that was there. Like the going, I mean, I know that intellectually, I know that communism is not of the devil, or satanic in and of itself. I mean, it sounds a lot like Acts 2, to be honest, in a lot of ways. But um, the, growing up, this idea that the, the, the commies were the bad guys, and they, that is from Satan. And this idea that that I didn't realize my entire life, everything is all about having some sort of enemy. Like, like you mentioned in the, in the intro, there's always an enemy. Mm-hmm. And the... The arguments and the the messaging from the this side of things doesn't work unless you got somebody to fight against, and that that uh, that was kind of I, that was eye opening for me in general. Absolutely, uh, I I think that's key to the the moving forward part of this book because it, mm-hmm. you're absolutely true. The whole thing depends on fear of losing something or. Or if you don't get something right, you know, it's the whole country's going to implode on itself. Um, but also every, every uh, one of these movements was more defined by what it was against, its enemies, who it was fighting yes. and protecting us from, mm-hmm. than yeah. what it was for. Who are we helping? Who are we, who are we to represent? Who are we for? And that, first of all, that is so difficult 
to not do because as soon as I read this book, I'm like, well, my enemies are these people now or whatever. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm ready to burn it down, you know, but the, that's, that's how we got here is, and, and if you asked, you know, cause I, I've, I've borrowed the perspective of my friends who were that for, to me, the enemy, they were liberals or whatever. Cause we were over communist, but, but the liberals were our enemies. Um, yeah. and my friends would have told me that Christians are defined by what they're against and who they're against and what they hate. And I would have said, you've got it all wrong. You don't know. It's That's not what we're supposed to be defined by. We're supposed to be defined by love. And so I, I was personally guilty of doing the thing where I know the theology. I know the four. I didn't know the four evangelical distinctives, but I know what we're supposed to be based on the Bible. I, I believe that the Bible is, is, uh, uh, is the word of God. And so I would have instantly said, Oh, well they're wrong about that, but they're, they're totally right about not what we, our intent is, but what the result is, is yeah, no, we know that you're against abortion. We know that you're against illegal immigration. We know that you're against, uh, any kind of homosexuality, becoming part of the the mainstream secularism you're against all these things and you're screaming it from from every rooftop and that's when Jesus came and he he wasn't against the right people whether that was strongly against Rome strongly against the Samaritans whatever strongly against the tax collectors strongly against the prostitutes that's what got the evangelical Pharisees mad. You're not against our enemies. In fact, you keep bringing them up as examples, and that's that's what they reacted against. And that's another way to measure the culture is to question like the legitimacy of gun culture, or or the or the like. Sh- should we really hold the military up that high? Is it inherently godly? Right. Those are things that. Will the culture will reveal itself very quickly, because we're against that's as evangelical Christians, Christians what we're against, and it defines us more than what we're for. Hmm. Well, and I think then we start creating systems and we make rules that we want to reflect, like what we think a Christian life should look like, and those rules and and things looking like that. That's not the same as doing the work of the kingdom itself, right? Like, yeah, we we can create this, this fake world. And we see that, like we see, okay, you know, purity culture and, and homeschool culture and quiverful, you know, they created this world and it looked so clean. You look at the Duggars, it looked clean and shiny and godly. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, and there was abuse happening underneath or, you know, like uh, Bill Gothard and ATI and stuff like Although that whole system created a culture where, where the bad stuff was, you know, pushed further into the darkness, but it was still there. Yeah. And the, the chapter, so the second to last chapter, I was doing just fine, but the chapter that really highlights that it's the, what is it? Oh, evangelical mulligans. Yeah. Yeah. Not the second to last chapter. The conclusion doesn't have a chapter. Well, the conclusion is a chapter. <laughs> yeah. Evangelical Mulligans is just a litany 
of all these people we just read about who were the champions and the heroes of evangelicalism being taken down one after another by long-standing and evil sin in their lives, like abuse of children or sexual abuse or paying pro- male prostitutes and the covering up of that by the other yeah. leaders in the group. And we're, we all grew up in the church of Christ, which is the least protected of any of these groups because the Southern Baptist has a convention the the, all of these groups have like the national association of evangelicals that they can kick people out of or, or let them back in. And the church of Christ has all of the cultural markings of, of patriarchy and, and power and of, of this very strong authority given to, to leadership. And of course the impulse that comes with that to protect the ministry and cover that up with none of that, with complete autonomy building by building, which is just terrifying to me because it's, it's the problem is the, the inability to, uh, to let the light in. The other way mm-hmm. to say that is the inability to show your your darkness, right? To to admit your fallenness, and it terrifies me the culture that is being built in churches of Christ, where we don't. I know we don't have that. We we do not. We're going to be the last one to to have a way for victims to have a safe space, and we're going to be the last one to uh, allow the kinds of people who accidentally end up in those places where then it, that kind of sin can grow, mm-hmm. we're going to be the last ones to be able to get rid of them ever because you can just go to the next congregation if if our elders or, or congregants were bold enough to, to do something about it. It's terrifying. Yeah, and the thing that frustrated me so much was I didn't realize how much of that kind of thing was wrapped up in the this masculinity idea. And I think she calls it near the end of the book the, the evangelical cult of masculinity. Like that's the best description of evangelical Christianity almost in general in America is the cult of masculinity and how so such so much of this stuff is covered up or explained away because even like even with Trump with the Access Hollywood tape, well he's just just locker room talk. Boys will be boys. You know? And and it's and like Mark Driscoll talking about testosterone and the size of his penis i mean come on and it's like it's so backward and messed up but it i i see it after i read the book i'm like i back up and like look at my life i'm like yeah there's so much wrapped up in this masculinity and making masculinity directly tied to uh, a stronger faith like the more manly you are the more christian you are and and it's really it's crazy because like you think there is not a separate list of fruit of the spirit for men. Yeah. You know, there, there, there <laughs> is really not a, a biblical basis for this. Like it, there's like, you, you can go, you can see some descriptors uh, when it comes to elders, deacons, which there's other arguments to have about those, but you could say, well, okay, here's a, an ideal for a man, but none of that is, um, is this manly man, you know, these people would have been disgusted by those guys. Uh, 
yeah. the milk toast kind of guys. You know, it's like this is this is not a a truly biblical concept. This is not what scripture shows us uh, that we're to aspire to. Uh, and so you, it is, it is, it, it's a perversion of, of scripture. And, and that's sad. And I, you know, when I finished the book, I was, ang- when, the first time through, I was angry and I went for a walk. I have a 13 year old son and we had a conversation about it. And it, I said, well, I was reading this book and it made me really mad. And I was kind of talking and, and I said, you know, because it's what it's, asking Chris what Christian culture is kind of asking guys to be like and I said and it's not what God is asking people to be like and he he was able to reflect as a 13 year old you know like the frustration and I can't imagine what it's like to be like a, a man trying to like like yes I mean we're women are have obviously suffered under this system but like men have too yeah I like I feel like men have not been allowed to be transformed into the image of Christ because there's been this other image, this, this idol of Christian manhood that's been put up there. And it's like, this is what you need to be. And I'm curious, like how you guys feel affected by that. Hmm. We're both so manly. So it's (laughs) (laughs) no, the, uh, the, it's a very good point because I remember forever ago when I read that, what is it? Oppressive systems hurts hurts everyone, right? Patriarchy hurts everyone. It's not that it benefits men and and hurts women. It's it's a the system benefits a few, but hurts hurts a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the in the examples in the book are of people who just are not who who are not the the macho man, but they're they're being that is being lifted up as something more spiritual. Mm-hmm. I think. I was totally immersed in the, like, Wild at Heart was a, a big thing, this warrior language, uh, making, yeah. you know, church less uh, feminine. And uh, I think that it fails men, in my opinion, or or for me, in knowing how to how to be a leader in a family. Like, that, growing up, I think that, I mean, first of all, just purity culture did a, did a work on me. That's, that's a, that's own five episode series, but, um, <laughs> but the, but this idea that because I'm, I am not, I, I have a beard, but I am not a match, a macho man. In fact, I, I would say I am more feminine than masculine. I, my favorite pants are capris. I like nice food. I, I don't, understand football you know so there's all kinds of things about me that i i never measured up to that but i i think it allowed me to see jesus differently because i wasn't if i was closer if i had a chance of being manly really manly then i maybe would have been more affected because i would have been like falling short but it was more like well i'm not going to do that so let's let's keep reading and see is there another way um, find a back door right i think i was i was really blessed with my father growing up because he my my dad was born in 1936 and so he grew up in a culture kind of before this 
I mean, the manliness idea has always been around, but before this idea of manliness being weirdly tied to faith and the the stereotypical kill stuff and grunt and scratch your balls thing, you know, <laughs> that that that's not that wasn't my dad. He's he's a very sensitive person. He's way more likely to cry at a movie than my mom, you know. He's very very calm and sweet and and loving and and he's just he's just he's not the quote unquote manly man that you would think of, but he's extremely manly to me because it's you know you you grew up wanting to be like your dad, right? And so that's kind of who my ideal was, and I don't, I don't know if and it's partly it's just how he was raised in his personality, but I think also partly that he dodged the uh, cult, the cult of masculinity that we're talking about. But I, um, I mean, all growing up when 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 church came around, and especially even even when I went to OC for college, I I played sports in high school and 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 junior high because I felt like I should. Because that's what men do, right? And I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't have like my identity there. And I, my dad never hunted, so I never hunted. He didn't go fishing, so I didn't. I don't know really go fishing. So all these things that are touchstones of masculinity, I never really had, and so I I dodged a lot of that. But at the same time, I I it was everywhere around me, and so I tried to figure out how I could try to appear manly. And then I, you, then the culture tells you if you're not doing this stuff, then you're not a real guy. I mean, you, you know, getting get where I'm getting at. So I, I dodged it. I was protect, protected in some ways, but I was totally sucked into it in other ways. That's a, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did. I, I, uh, I snorted out loud when I got to the smoking hot wife craze of the whatever year that was because uh, just where preachers realized that it's they should add in they're like oh and I love my wife and she's super hot you know I've started to realize that I've I'm such an individualist as an American and that uh, I have some big blind spots uh, because of that and you know you know that that stuff is one of them that the individual examples that I've grown up with compared to like what our group was doing as a whole and what kind of collectively we were doing when I, when I thought of, cause I had heard of some of those pastors and the, the scandals that they're caught in. And, and what I thought was, Oh, that's, uh, that's their personal failing. They had, they had something wrong in their heart. It's the high being brought low because they had some evil inside of them, which is, there's truth to that. But I'm starting to see that those people are in evil systems that allowed that to happen, that that took away the power from from people who were maybe could be potentially abused one day and gave Mm -hmm. power to people so that it's just statistics that eventually you get the combination of the kind of person who now has just the clear path to whatever that is. And that I I think we're more hurt by that collective, whether it's, you know, sex abuse scandals, which is what that chapter is mostly about, but our collective idea of 
who we are as a church matters. It's not just the individual correct belief about the Bible or the individual soul. We are as a we are the church, and it and that that matters a lot more than I think um, I've given given us all credit for. Well, and when you look at it as as a systemic thing, you know the system. You think about like. Uh, systems therapy is like it's like the system is going to fight to protect itself yeah and if that's what is you look at this what's happened with the southern baptist convention like how big of a fight victims are having just for the opportunity for investigation it's it's ridiculous but that that is what will continue to happen something that really uh struck me recently and this is going to sound weird but is the churches in revelation the congregations at the beginning and that there's this hmm. aspect of corporate judgment that god is looking at these churches and saying hey your system like as a group you're messed up you know because That's we think point. about <laughs> like individual it's like well i've got my stuff together and it's like wait a minute am i participating in something that is hmm. not god honoring even though I'm trying to honor God in my presence there. And I just that realization was like, oh, there's more to it. That's a little unsettling, though, <laughs> to be honest. But, I mean, I, yeah. Because we're such, an, we're such an individualistic society, our culture. So, like, fight, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling, right? We take that to mean mine personally. You do what you want to do, whatever. But I gotta focus on me. But you're right. Jesus doesn't. He, he doesn't address individuals at those churches. He he's like, you collectively have a problem. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know, not not the elders, but everybody. <laughs> and it's hard, like because I believe that God is everywhere. I believe that like no church is right and no one is completely wrong. But apparently. And, and I mean, granted, yes, it's it's prophecy, and so maybe I don't need to take it all literally, but I don't know, man. It sure sounds like <laughs> he's got some strong feelings about that. And so then that's kind of a lens through which we can look at some of this conversation, though. It's like, okay, are we participating in a system that is, instead of honoring God, is it actually <laughs> making things worse? Yeah. Am I, is my Jesus a sacrificial who considering his power lowered himself and didn't grasp it? Uh, or am I like in this book, literally trying to remake Jesus into what I want him to be? Well, no, he was at, he wasn't a turn the cheek sissy. He was like, no, he said that that's Jesus that we're quoting. Um, Jesus is the God who had all of the power and gave it all up for his enemies. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of enemies. So am I someone who is going to seek more power so I can destroy my enemies or win against them or something? Or am I, am I following Jesus and sacrificing for the benefit of my enemies? And I don't want to do that. That sounds miserable, but that's that's what we're called to and and all of this grasping towards it's the it's the bible turned upside down which is the bible is the world to, turned upside down it's the upside down kingdom 
It's the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And, and what this book is trying to warn us individually and collectively about is that we want to, f- up, we want to rewrite it. We want to, mm-hmm. we want to turn it back up right again. No, no, that upside down kingdom stuff. I prefer to have, we want a king, God, right? It's not new. The idolatry of the past is not something that we got over as Americans. It's, it's a real temptation. And the gods that they worship, money, sex, power, war, are the gods that we still want to, want to put at the top of our worldly, the right side up kingdom, not the upside down weird servant God who, who, who lets himself be killed for his enemies kind of kingdom. And yeah, that idea that, that idea that we think we can stop it. Like (laughs) we have some control over it. I was uh, at a church on Sunday morning and it is definitely evangelical. And he was talking about um, first Peter. He was reading first Peter four, starting in verse 12 and like, don't be surprised, you know, fiery ordeal and da da da. And it, I don't think that it was working to make the point that he wanted it to, at least not to me, because, you know, Peter is really laying it out there. Like there's a fiery ordeal coming, coming and you're going to suffer. And mm. it's not, there's a fiery ordeal coming and you'd better do your best to fight back against it. Like this stuff is happening. And I mean, we see that over and over again, right? Like in the new Testament, like it's going to get real. Sorry, you're going to suffer. And, and it's not take up arms and try to prevent suffering from happening at all costs. Yeah. It's how do you survive? And, and not even survive like physically, but, you know, how, how do you keep your faith? Right. And I think that that's what survival is. In, I mean, in a, in a kingdom that is not of this world, your survival is not about keeping your stuff or your house, or your, and, or your guns. Survival is about holding on to God. And another thing that I have never understood is the, along those lines, is the uh, Christian fascination with weapons and guns, which kind of ties into this whole thing of this idea that we've got to fight back, and that fight is a very real physical one and that if i don't if i don't fight back about against the commies and and the gays and whatever then they're going to come in and influence my kids and they're going to change their minds and take them away from god and that that it's that permission and again and that weird wrapping up of okay i don't want my kids to fall away from god but then they turn that into so i better shoot the guy who's coming f- Coming to work on my house because he's got a turban on. I mean, <laughs> these these leaps of of logic that Christians have been doing for the past seventy years. I mean, forever, really. But and I know I I do some of this stuff too. But I mean, we're we're dealing with a a society of Christians who have turned the Bible upside down, like Nathan was saying. And it's it's depressing, and that's what that's that's one reason this book is so depressing, is that it's it's telling the truth. And so, I mean, it's kind of a question just to throw it out in the universe. But what do we do? Is there anything we can do? 
Are we just out of luck? Just do our own thing. <laughs> what do we do, Valerie? Oh, well, I have a five-step plan. <laughs> and buy uh, my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find it at Mardell. <laughs> <laughs> they would not carry me. Um, no, I. You know, I. I have been struggling with this because I. The last line of the book is what was done might also be undone. And and there is that open door. There is that hope. And and I have been wrestling with this. It's like what what do we do? And I think part of it is is this. It's the unpacking. It's the opening our eyes, realizing Oh, wait. We are off track. Yeah. I mean, you you have to have those moments from time to time. And and I don't even think that like that to find ourselves in a situation like that, that's not a bad thing. Like we should, we should constantly be becoming aware of the ways that we are misguided and how we're following. Like that should be part of our process. Like I want to follow yeah, God yeah. better. You know, th- this is, this is sanctification. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like we should be pursuing this and, and pursuing truth no matter how uncomfortable it is or how close to home it hits. I find myself being drawn to just the first Thessalonians, like making it my ambition to lead a quiet life, to, to shun anything that looks like power. Um, I found myself kind of in the, as, as we left church planting. And I mean, let me tell you, like we were in that whole world. Like I went, I drove to Saddleback to go to Purpose Driven Life Conference or Purpose Driven Church Conference. Like I, (laughs) I was, I was totally on board with a lot of this stuff. And now I find myself just like, I hate the system. I'm like an anarchist. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I see people, you know, there have been all through history and and through the 20th century, there are faithful Christians quietly going about God's work. And as much as I want to shout and scream and change the system, like maybe I start by focusing on quietly going about the Lord's work and the work of the kingdom and, and making a difference where I am. And that sounds so corny. Like I hate that. Because we've been promised the world, we've been promised power, and we, you know, it's like we can affect world change. And obviously, I want to be like global minded, but I need to start with this world around me. I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right, and I, I, part of the globalization of information that we have in our in our world right now, with not just the news, but the internet and everything. It almost gives us this idea that we can any anybody out there can if they do the right stuff can change the world and can c- convey mm-hmm. this to the right stuff to everybody. But I think that starting with just yourself and your family and the people around you and the people listening to this podcast now, <laughs> that um, starting small and and honestly, seventy years seems like a lot to us because I'm not that old. It's not. It's a very small slice of of history. It's a very small slice of Christianity and humanity in general. And there are occasionally kind of you know revolutions and things change. And I, I 
I almost wonder, I mean, I have, I have no idea how God works in this world. I have no clue at all. But sometimes maybe it's just the optimist in me. I look at this stuff going on with Christian nationalism and this cult of, of masculinity and Trump and, and the horrible stuff that seems to be popping up now that I'm realizing has been there for a long time. But I'm wondering if it's popping up now and, and people like like us and, and the, all these other Christians that I'm coming across on the internet who are doing the same kind of thinking that we are doing. I wonder if, if, if God's kind of a lot like pushing that out to, to flip things around and, and fix stuff. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Am I just being I, wishful thinking? I mean, the cool thing <laughs> is even if he's not, even if it's not what he's doing, it's what he can do with it. Yeah. You know, and so, okay, like, this is a great opportunity for the church. Like, there are other issues, too, that probably need to be cleaned up. So let's go with it. Like, let's embrace it. Let's, because it, but, but I mean, I agree. I see that, like, I have lots of friends in different denominations and stuff who are going through the same thing. Like, this is a universal thing in Christianity yeah. right now. Um, there is just a, a huge shakeup. And so let, let's enjoy it. Now, the other day I found myself like, man, I wish I had the energy to plant a church, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to wait. Like Gen Z is going to fix us. <laughs> They're going to come along. They're going to do something. And I'm just going to be one of those cool old people. So I think that that's what I'm going to do right now is just like bide my time until Gen Z gets it figured out. Wait it out. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll be like the the silver haired granny that they're all like, man, I like her. So that's that's my plan. It's I think that's not a good, a plan. good one, but no, the, it checks out. I, I I've been struggling with this the same thing. What do we do? Because I'm I have this ball of stress after reading this book, and I think about my congregation, and then the broader denomination, and then the global the American church and, and oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this? And then I start to think of the things that I'm going to do about this. And there's, there's something good about that. And that's important, but God does it. God does it. And the, this, when I'm in that, uh, when I'm feeling that tension and that fear or anger or stress, I am probably not moving in the right direction for the right reasons God with me. I could, here's a theological statement that I'm going to make up based on no research. God doesn't take people who are fearful and turn their fear into, into the right kind of action. Like, so then David was afraid of Goliath. And so he ran and did the thing. God takes people who are fearful and says, you're going to have to stop that first. You're going to have to Mm. stop the fear because I've got something I need you to do. And, and when oh. a, another way to, so I, I've got that fear, it's not going to ever lead me to the right place. And what does though is peace. So, which I do not have, but, but the, you know, there's that verse um, where, where Jesus is about to be arrested and he's about to be crucified and he's, he's talking to his disciples and he says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Mm. And we act like the world is about to overcome us at any minute now. But it's not. 
we're safe and it's not me moving, it's God moving. And there's, that doesn't take away my role in, in things. And, and there's a time for me to step up or to have a voice or to do something. It's not about uh, passivity or action, but, oh, it's totally about trust and faith, which gives you peace. Trust and faith isn't something that leads you to fear, and fear doesn't lead you to trust and faith. Hmm. So the quiet, I mean, I think the quiet life in many ways is is a very valid answer to that because it's taking the half a step back to breathe some and to really explore the world in those times when you have peace. Because you, you said you were, we have to search after truth, but man, the TV is set up to, to give you, it's easier to, to be fed a, a mistruth or a half truth if you're angry or afraid or hungry or you want something. So. Hmm. Oh, which, which, I mean, that's, that's what we see through the book, you know, is all these people operating out of fear or capitalizing on our fears to um, do what they want to do. Yeah. I'm an Enneagram six. So <laughs> like overcoming fear is, my specialty because I it's it's easy for me to live there and you know with the whole point of the the Enneagram is to say this is who I am and I can be more and and, and so I've really worked to to uh, learn how to not operate out of fear because if I let it it will govern me and I think that that has to be an intentional choice though. Yeah. And you, you can see communities and sermons. It doesn't even take very long. Just you draw their map and are are they fearful and protecting against like the people on the outside? Do they need to reinforce practically there? Is it bullet pane glass in their doors or is there a, a peace? Right. And, and the fruit of the spirit, just bringing it back to that, the the fruit of the spirit, I think, are can also be collective. So mm-hmm. we we're working on that. It's not a, it's not even supposed to be us working on that. It's the spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's it's what happens when the spirit changes people like me into someone like Jesus, and that happens collectively as well. For too long, we have circled the wagons gotten our guns out waiting for for an enemy when i i think that letting god take control having faith takes that away it takes away that that fear um and i think you see communities and people who are who are effective and who who are witnesses and it's a pretty simple but difficult thing yeah and fear is i think something that is very effective if you want to gain power and control. And I think that that's one reason it's been used by, well, probably both sides, but especially the, the in the frame of this book, the evangelical Republican machine. Because if I make you afraid, then you will listen to me and I will, you'll do what I tell you to do. But you're, you're so right, Nathan. So much of, I mean, Jesus is all about, don't be afraid. We won't have, we don't have to be afraid. And if we can focus on that as Christians and 
can try to convince these the, the, our fellow Christians who are stuck in this world that not only is it the kingdom not of, of this world, but because it's not, you can let the fear go, and this weight can come off your shoulders when you realize that it's not up to you to make sure that Jesus is going to come back one day. It's not up to you to make sure that, that Christianity does not go away on this planet. It's up to you to trust and have faith and to live the life that you can live and try to be Christ to the people around you. Amen. Yeah. Well, we fixed it. Good. Yeah, it's sorted out. So there we go. I don't know <laughs> if that was five steps, but it was close. <laughs> uh, well, probably ought to wind it down. Yeah, just in some summary for for myself, that this book it opened my eyes in a lot of ways, made me sad in a lot of ways. But uh, it was this is a very good example of knowing history, so you don't repeat it. I think, and so I, I'm glad that I know some of this history. That even though I'm living it, literally living through it right now, I would like to try to internalize some of this stuff so I don't pass it down to my kids. And uh, I, I, I recommend this book to anybody, Christian or not, evangelical or not. I think this, it's, such, it's not just the history of evangelicalism in, in America. It's, it's the history of America. So mm-hmm. tied together. Yeah. I do not recommend it to everybody. But, it's, but there are so, because there's, there's a certain, there's a large segment of Christianity right now that is not ready for this book. Uh, but you know who you are. I mean, I guess we could recommend it to everyone because they're not going to get through the first. Well, if they don't like it, they can use it for target practice. Right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. But it's, it is a book for a, at a time when a lot of people need this book. It's yeah. not for Christians. It's not for, it's just for people trying to understand what's going on. You have any final thoughts, Valerie? Probably. <laughs> no, I, I, it is. It's a necessary read right now. I'm I'm really thankful that it's out there. I think I don't know if you guys follow the author on Twitter. She takes a lot of heat and she's yeah, been she publishing articles. Um I the latest she's getting in trouble for Braveheart. You know, oh, attack yes. <laughs> And and I, I'm I'm so thankful that she's willing to put herself out there. Like there is no benefit to her really um at this point mm. to to put this stuff out there but she is and and i always appreciate that when people are are willing to sacrifice to um help us see what we're not seeing and and to become aware of what this world we're operating in and then for us at this point you know as we're trying to unpack the whole church bubble and the whole just everything it's like oh this is this is some stuff i need to consider yeah you know that's it's kind of structural you know, somewhere. yeah yeah but it's okay gen z will fix it and if not jesus will come back and it'll be good and <laughs> yeah, no pressure to the gen z people listening. <laughs> you know. we're sorry just if you don't fix it you know the whole country's gonna go to pot and you know no big deal yeah, we we tried a little bit, and it's just it's more than we can do. So, 
Do your TikTok dances and fix it. We actually broke it. We tried and we broke it in trying. That was uh, was us. We are. Th- this book is us. We're sorry. Uh, don't don't do what what we did. So good to have you here, Valerie. I I feel like because the book is so timely, we could keep talking about it for four hours. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Really appreciated your your insights though. I think that a lot of people are going to find this book and we're, we're all going to kind of be talking about this. So thank you again, Valerie. Good to have the uh, communist collectivist Canadian view and a Baptist <laughs> as always. So we really appreciate it. Thanks. It was great. It was fun. <laughs> See you later. All these messages I thought you wanted to hear. But it only takes a whisper. Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you later.